what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Life Well Done podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to ask that if you are listening to this on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to, if you could stop and subscribe, rate, comment, share it with other people so we can help boost the ratings and get the information out to more people. Um, also, offering nutrition and, and fitness coaching, um, whether it's weightlifting, sport performance, or you're just trying to lose some body weight, get that summer body ready, whatever it is, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at lifewelldone, um, or if you just have topics or um, guests that you would like to hear about, let me know. I'll try and get in contact with them, have them on the podcast, and see what we can learn from them. Um, yeah. For today's episode, a uh, really cool dude on here, uh, Devin McConnell. He is the Director of Performance Science and Rec- Reconditioning uh, for the New Jersey Devils. Um, really cool dude to talk to, was willing to take on an onslaught of questions from me um, and some questions that uh, some people wrote in about. Um, but awesome dude. If you're new to the strength conditioning uh, career or you're thinking about it or you don't know much about it and you want to find out what you can do with it, uh, Devin gives some opportunities there or options to, to what's possible um, and also some of his journey. Uh, if you're just learning to figure out what uh, these athletes do day to day and what his role is and all these other things and how they grow, this would be a great episode as well. Uh, Devin was awesome. Can't thank him enough. Um, and he also confirmed for, fa- for a fact that hockey is indeed the toughest sport. So take a listen. Let me know what you think. And uh, hope you guys have a good day. And here we go. We're recording here. Um, so, Devin, awesome. Glad to have you on here. Um, you just talked a little bit, but if you can kind of give us that uh, two or three mile view of who you are, the 10,000 foot uh, view for us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm excited to talk shop. Um, Devin McConnell, Director of Performance Science, New Jersey Devils. Um, I've been uh, with the Devils here for uh, essentially this is my first season uh, with the Devils. Prior to that, I worked at uh, the University of Massachusetts Lowell, um, primarily with the ice hockey team. Uh, there I was, I was uh, in Lowell, which is just outside the Boston area, for uh, almost nine years. Uh, before that, uh, I worked at Stanford University out in California for three years with the women's basketball, men's women's volleyball team. Uh, prior to that, and basically kind of the start of my, my career, I, uh, I interned and then worked for Mike Boyle at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning in the Boston area. Uh, I grew up in the, on the West Coast, actually. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. was a hockey player and, and lived all over kind of North America playing hockey. Ended up going to school. Uh, to play hockey in the Boston area. And that's essentially how I kind of ended up going down the road that I did. Um, originally thought I wanted to be a physical therapist and uh, realized basically by dumb luck that uh, the job of strength and conditioning coach was a thing. I didn't even realize that was a, a job or a career path. Um, kind of figured that out in college. And uh, the rest is kind of history. That's where, uh, where things kind of took off for me from a career standpoint. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm young in it. I, I found my start like more in the CrossFit, like after my college playing stopped and, and kind of had an opportunity to CrossFit. And that's kind of where I figured out like, Oh, I, I really do enjoy movement and science, all these things. But, um, CrossFit has since kind of passed me and, and over that. And, um, but it is funny because you look at it and like, I didn't in college, I, I was playing club hockey, so it wasn't anything that serious, but we didn't have strength coaches. We we're all doing it on our own. And now you look back and go, Oh man, what kind of athlete or what, what would it have been like say, you know, injury prevention, all these other things. If we had that coach or if I had 
any idea of what we should do other than, you know, four sets of 10 reps on bench press. And, you know, like yeah. it, it's kind of funny, which is I still think that the strength conditioning profession is in its infancy, if not in just the actual career, but in people's understanding of what, what it actually is and why it's important. Um, and hopefully through this, uh, we'll have a little bit better idea of like, how, you know, what it takes to be in your position, what's really goes in your day to day. So, uh, that's all pretty sweet. Um, I wanted to know a little bit about your youth. You said you grew up in Seattle playing hockey. How'd you end up in Boston for it? Where, where were you playing? Did you play in college? Yeah. So I, I played up through college. Um, so yeah, growing up Seattle, Washington, hockey is not, it's, it's getting pretty big now. They're going to have an NHL team and stuff like that. But when I grew up there, hockey was not a, um, not a big sport, right? Like there was probably my high school, which is a, a pretty big school in the area. We might've had three or four kids at my school that, that played hockey. So there wasn't like uh, high school hockey. Um, you played for a, you know, a youth organization or association. And, um, and then if you're good enough, you, you kind of moved on and you played junior hockey. So most of my like uh, youth hockey was really spent like in the Vancouver, Canada area, uh, which is only a couple gotcha. hours from, yeah. from Seattle. So I spent a lot of my time growing up kind of playing hockey in Canada and then uh, moved away to start playing junior hockey uh, when I was a senior in high school and, and ended up playing. So I was 17 when I left uh, more or less and, and played all the way until I aged out at, at 21, which is kind of the, the oldest you can be at, at that level. Um, and, and like I said, I ended up playing five or six different, you know, teams, different cities all over North America. Um, wanted to continue to play, had the opportunity to go, uh, play at a school was recruited at a school in the, the uh, Massachusetts area um, Fitchburg State College a division three school and so that's how I kind of ended up there it was really I wasn't I wasn't good enough to play uh, division one hockey um, and for division three there really there's either teams kind of in Minnesota area or kind of in New England that's kind of the two yeah. areas. small division pockets there is, yeah and um, I I always, I had no, I'd never been to Boston, but I always wanted to go to Boston University for some reason. <laughs> um, and so the Fitchburg State's, you know, 45 minutes from Boston and it just, uh, it was the right fit as far as where it was. Uh, you know, I was a goaltender. You know, I had an opportunity to play right away there. That was a big piece of me ending up there. That's versus awesome. Yeah. Else. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I ended up kind of in the Boston area. It was just uh, a bunch of a bunch of dumb luck to be honest with you. <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's funny you say it about Boston. Like I've never been to Boston either. And, uh, with, through some of my schooling, I had thought that my, my path would take me up to Boston. That's where I wanted to end it, you know, end it with the, like a PhD or, you know, whatever it is. I've since changed course, but there's always still this like little bit of like, I don't know, BU, BC, like these schools. So I don't know. I wonder if it's a little bit of a hockey thing where yeah. there's like this, like dark, like this little corner of Boston where you're like, it's hockey, it's hockey yeah. city there. And, but uh, I mean, if I'm being honest, the Bruins, I can't stand the Bruins. So that would be a good reason not to go there. But um, I'm from Detroit. So uh, even like going to the Devils games, we're like, oh, this is rough. But um, we'll start diving into some of the stuff. It's pretty cool how you got there. I think we'll probably sift through a few other things here. But um, you've written a book, uh, Intent, A Practical Approach to Applied Sports Science for Athletic Development. You wrote that with... Um, well, I think it's your buddy, uh, Justin, I'm going to get, I'm going to say this wrong. Rothlin. No, I'll just let you take it away. Yeah. Justin Rothman Chopper. Uh, there yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Friends and colleagues. And, and we put a book together. 
Awesome. What, what drove you guys to do that? Like what's, what's the, the, the encompassing story of that book? Um, obviously it's, it's the athletic development, but where do you start with it and, and what drove you guys to put that together? Yeah. So, so Justin and I both, uh, we, we met probably five or six years ago now, but um, essentially we, the book is about how to use the principles of sports science in the training process as a strength coach. Um, regardless of sort of the level you're at or the budget you're at. So we kind of illustrate how to use the principles of, you know, um, force velocity and, and jump profiling, whether you have access to force plates or a jump mat or just, you know, chalk Tape and you can jump and yeah. put it on the wall, right? So right. regardless of where you are, the, the premise of the book kind of came around when Justin and I basically realized that we were both working in college hockey at the time that, we both sort of had ended up at the same point in our careers as far as really kind of diving in and utilizing sports science and did a lot of things the same way and had a lot of the same thought processes without knowing each other. So when we first kind of met, we realized, Hey, you, you both do sort of some of the same stuff. And we came here organically and we decided, you know, maybe it'd be good to put some of these thoughts down on paper and, and share some of what we've learned and, and things like that. And at the time um, there weren't, a lot of people in hockey doing much in sports science. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve with that. So that's kind of how we ended up putting that together. Well, that's sweet. It's um, I think that's something that I've noticed, like I've been more in the private sector, but I've worked a little bit with high schools and, you know, a few teams and stuff like that, like small teams and just kind of like sometimes the biggest challenge isn't so much the player as much as it's like, well, how do we get the same standard of measurement for all these athletes with so such a varying like a variety of implements, you know, like, you know, vertical jump, you know, some people have everything they need and other people you, you are putting chalk on a wall or chalk on their hands and tapping up on the wall, see what it does. So that's pretty cool that you look at it from all levels so that there is kind of some kind of standard across the board. And I think that's important because, you know, just like anything else, you get the high school coach who's tracking a 40 time. It's like, yeah, it's a four, four, one, uh, 40, you're like, there's no way. And then they go to the combine. They're like, that's like a four, nine. So yeah, you're not yeah. even close. So it's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, so I, I tagged you in it yesterday uh, before we did this podcast, just kind of see there's a couple people out there, strength conditioning and hockey community. Those are my two communities of where I come from. So I've got probably a little bit of a random assortment of questions here, but I'm going to try and go into a couple of orders, but um, obviously being in pro uh, now with the New Jersey Devils, starting well, you were with several colleges, Stanford, and, and then more recently UMass Lowell. Um, my question is really more about like your transition from college to pro, the biggest adjustment, and then kind of what's the difference. But it might be better to start at like your current position. What what exactly does that entail? I, there's a couple of building questions from there, but those two things kind of drive my my questions today. So maybe just talk about what exactly you do maybe in a day to day and uh, see where we go from there. Yeah. So, um, so my role uh, with the devils is um, it's a little bit unique uh, in the hockey world. Again, it's the model that we have organizationally um, from a, a performance and medical standpoint is uh, some, some people would, would classify it or, or term the term would be a high performance model. And really what this means is we have um we, we try to avoid having silos between strength and conditioning and, uh, and medical, right? And so basically to do that, we have uh, somebody that kind of oversees both pieces of the puzzle, kind of an umbrella approach. Um, and then 
my role is, is a little bit unique and was created uh, after Chris Stackpole, our, our VP for player care, uh, took over that kind of high performance manager role. And again, this is a, a pretty standard model in like uh, European, like soccer and Australia and these places that are a little bit more progressive from a, a sports science and performance standpoint, a little bit newer in North America. But my role here, basically, I oversee, um, it, I, re, I wear three hats. I oversee everything that has to do with, with sport and performance science. So any of the sort of tools and technology that we might use from, you know, force plates to heart rate monitors, GPS monitors, any of that stuff that we, were, we would use uh, in the weight room and out on the ice. It's kind of my, my baby and, and what I oversee day to day. Uh, I assist with the day-to-day, you know, strength and conditioning. I'm on the floor with the team, uh, working with our head strength coach um, on just the general team training and warm up and cool down and all the, you know, the, the stuff that we would normally do anyways that, you know, basically an assistant strength coach would do. I, I also kind of see, uh, oversee that stuff. And then I also am in charge of the reconditioning, which is basically the, the middle ground of return to play. So when we have athletes that are injured, once they're able to kind of move out of um, the acute stage and just working with the medical staff and they can now start to train um, and, and, you know, start to progress towards getting back onto the ice. That's kind of where I fall. So I, I work sort of directly with those athletes and with our medical staff to help bridge the gap from injured, unable to, to play to back to on the ice to compete. Well, that's pretty sweet. So you did kind of keep that physical therapy uh, alive in some some light. Um, we're getting the reconditioning in with them. That's, yeah, uh, that's. I mean, yeah. it's and that's definitely. Uh, you know, by no means am I a PT, and and certainly you know uh, didn't end up going to school for physical therapy. But that model and thought process has always been very um, ingrained in my approach to performance training, anyways. And that's kind of where you get into the, you know quote unquote, functional training and thinking about, you know, how the body actually functions in sport and in life versus just, you know, on a table. Um, so that's always been a piece of the puzzle. So I think that that helps, uh, at least from a, a, um, a communication standpoint with the medical sure. staff to be kind of a do you Do you, do you get like a, um, a lot of pressure from coaches or anybody in the organization, you know, like you get somebody like a Hughes coming through and they're, they're injured. I think he went out for a short period of time this year with a foot injury. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you get any pressure from them of like, we need them back quickly? Um, or do, yeah. do they respect, you know, as much as they can respect, like you saying like, Hey, it just needs more time. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't because I'm not the, I'm not the person who has the final say in that. Um, that would be, you know, that's, that's part of the role of the high performance managers. They're kind of, they're the end stage. They make the final, they have the veto, right? Um, but I, I would say that uh, I don't think that there's a lot of that, at least within our organization, because I think that um, all parties from kind of ownership to management to coaching staff down, we're all very aligned uh, and there's a lot of trust and, and communication is certainly a piece of that. And, and certainly you want players back as quickly as possible right. when they're injured. But at the same time, there's always the, the backside of that equation uh, about the, the risk of, you know, re-injury if you bring people back and, and sure. everybody is acutely aware of the balance between that. So, um, I, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of pressure in those scenarios. They trust that organizationally we have the same vision and the same goals to get people back as, as quickly as possible, but also appropriately. So there's, 
you know, there's good trust, trust across the, the organization. Sure. That way. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, you know, like there's a common urgency to get your players back for obvious reasons, but uh, I've always been interested because it, hopefully we're phasing out of that in sports. Um, but, and obviously most players that we both played, like, even when you're injured, you're like, I'm ready to go. Like I can yeah. do this. It takes a lot to sit there and just go, no, I can't do this right today. Like it's not going to work. And, but, and I would um, say that there's, if there's any pressure, it's more from the, a from lot the of times from the players. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's uh, I feel like the hockey world is uh, an interesting culture with that, but maybe, maybe we'll dive into that a little bit at some point. Um, so I guess building off of that, there'll probably be a couple sub questions from there, but your transition from the college level to the pro level, what was the biggest adjust, adjustment? Maybe what's like the biggest difference between the two? Is it have to do with expectations, egos? Obviously, you're working with some high-profile athletes. You've got the Hughes and the Subans and, you know, the young goalies that are coming up. Black, um, what is um, Blackwood. Blackwood, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you're working with some egos, whether negatively or positively. They're just they're high-profile athletes. And what's the adjustment between that college level and to that pro level and all, with all of that? Yeah, it's it. There's a lot of things that are very different. There's there's a lot of things that are that are the same. I, I, one of the biggest differences uh, for my job personally is that I've kind of gone from a role in the college setting where I, you know, I was the only, you know, basically the only person on this side of the department. We had a obviously a head athletic trainer that we that I worked with very closely, but for all intents and purposes, I was the high performance manager. I was the reconditioning coach. I was the head strength coach. I was a nutritionist. Like. I was all of that, which there's pros and cons of that. You know, uh, the cons, you, you can only do so much in a day and, and you can only focus in so many areas. But the pros of that are like, I, if I decided we were going to do something or there was a path I was going to take, we were going to do it because right. I answered to myself. Whereas here, um, obviously, there's a lot more, you know, people in the room, a lot more minds, um, which is hugely beneficial. Everybody has a little bit more of a specialty, but we can bounce ideas off each other and, and work collaboratively. But at the same time, it's a collaborative team group. So it's not necessarily just what I want to do or what someone else wants to do. We have to come to a consensus. So um, from a personal kind of professional standpoint, those are some of the, the biggest differences between the two. And then certainly working with the athletes, it's not so much the, the you know, potential egos or, or, or things like that. It's more so really the difference between um, – the amount of time you have to train in college versus pro uh, and, and really realistically the um, the importance of training, right? So at the college level um, and especially where I was at, at UMass Lowell uh, where we had a very, very good, very competitive uh, on the national stage program, but we were also a program that was known for having to develop players. We, we weren't necessarily getting, all first round draft picks uh, on our team. We had a lot of, you know, kind of blue collar type players. If we didn't make our players better, the team wasn't going to be any good. And that kind of goes without saying, but at the same time, you're competing against teams a lot of times that have, you know, first and second round players all through their, their lineup that are much more sort of talent and skill based. So really it was, it was important. Strength and conditioning and training was hugely important in our program there. Because again, if our players didn't get better, we couldn't compete with teams that were just very, very talented at this level. Um, one, there's a lot less time to train, you know, in the college setting, we would literally be training. We would be doing something from training four days a week and then playing two games. Um, here you're, you're playing every other day for, you know, basically, uh, six months. 
Um, and so the amount of time that is dedicated to training is very, very minimal compared to the college setting. So what you are able to do and what you have to sort of laser focus on um, is a lot more challenging here than it was at the college setting where you could really, really sink your teeth into training and do a bunch of stuff and really develop athletes. Here it's more about fine tuning athletes. Sure. That's, uh, uh, that's pretty fascinating to me. It, like intuitively you would have thought it would be different, but obviously understanding the schedule and then also looking at like, well, you, you, when you are in the pros, you are already working with a pretty fine tuned athlete for the most part. Um, so it's like, how do you maintain that level and allow that new foundation to be set so that they can take a, you know, another half step forward? Cause the steps are probably so small at that point. Cause it's, it's been milked. Um, so with that kind of, to me, it's intuitive that it would be like, Oh, there's way more time with the pros. Like you can train more and more. Um, but now the way you're putting that, like it, it does actually make a little bit of sense as far as, Oh, uh, there's different developmental stages that you're looking for in a college or, you know, junior, whatever it might be versus that pro. So that, that makes total sense. Um, I actually got several questions then for, for a lot of this. I understand that maybe in the college level, you oversaw a lot more like nutrition and, and strength conditioning, um, or you were responsible for it. But at this point you still have your hand in these things. It sounds like, you, you know, um, so one of my questions was kind of just about the game day nutrition and the training. Um, obviously there's maybe minimal, what we'll call minimal training, but they're doing something. So in Detroit, um, grew up watching, you know, the dynasty of the Red Wings in 25 years of playoffs. And we had likes of like Chris Chellis come through who he was notoriously on a bike for, you know, after every practice or whatever, you know, whatever it was, or Datsuk, you know, squatting 225 after games and just kind of putting that work in. But it was always to me, like when you look at the principles of certain things and strength conditioning versus what they're doing. I don't have any understanding of what that is at that pro level and why they'd be, you know, certain things make sense. Like, all right, you know, flush system, get cooled down on a bike, whatever it might be. But you hear so many stories and you're like, well, what, what's real first of all. And then what's the, why, what's the reasoning? What does it just look like? Um, so just like game day nutrition training and how that might change from, you know, day to day. Yeah. I mean, from the nutrition standpoint, uh, the NHL is often called the never hungry league because there's always a, there's always food available. It's a, um, it's a blessing and a curse. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I mean, literally we have, so on a game day, we would have, um, breakfast for the players, uh, pregame meal for the players, postgame meal for the players. Um, there's all kinds, you know, there's literally all kinds of, you know, different snacks and proteins and there's everything kind of available sure. for guys. Um, and it's, it's nothing out of the ordinary from a food standpoint, but it's, you know, it's high quality protein source, um, uh, fruits and vegetables, you know, high, high quality carb sources, um, all that type of stuff. The training side of things is really interesting. Um, so a lot of teams do train, uh, post game, which again, to your sort of point of like the textbook doesn't say that, like that doesn't make a lot of sense from the textbook standpoint, but Again, logistics dictate everything. And, and the reality is um, if you play essentially every other day, then when can you apply the stresses necessary to develop or to maintain force output and strength uh, while still uh, maximizing your recovery time? Uh, so let's say we play on a Tuesday night and then we play again on a Thursday. Um, you know, again, the textbook would say, well, you play a game. It's a super high load stressor. Uh, you need to 
you know, recover from that and then potentially train the next day. But if you're training the next day, now you're lifting uh, potentially intensely, intensively the day before a game. So that's certainly not ideal. So essentially what you're doing by training post game uh, and it's very minimal, like it might be two to three sets of, you know, three, three reps of a, a split squat or, or whatever, you know, primary lift. Um, it's as minimal effective dose as we can be. But the idea is that if you're done, then you're maximizing the amount of time before the next game that you're able to recover from that stress. So it really becomes this, this balancing act between finding places to apply the appropriate stressors and maximizing recovery. Because this is one of the things that's so important to understand at this level is, um, do players, do certain players need to physically develop or develop certain qualities? Are we trying to improve their abilities in certain areas? Absolutely. But it's about playing the next game. It's always about playing the next game. Like that's the most important thing is playing the next game and performing. Um, whereas again, like in college, we play Friday and Saturday night, like we can train on Monday and recover and still be able to play on Friday. Sure. But in this, in this setup, you have a game every other day almost. So it's a lot trickier to find those opportunities. That's fair. That's a, uh, it makes sense from a recovery standpoint. You said, I mean, I got some stuff about like sleep and just, you know, the general like monitoring, but um, we'll try and get into that at some point, but it, it does make sense uh, just from the timing of it. You said logistics, that's, that's gotta be tough just because, you know, back to backs and then, you know, three games, five nights, whatever it might be with and you include travel and just the wear and tear on the body from travel. I know, Again, being like from Detroit, we played in the Western Conference so long, which only made it, you know, as you start diving into like the sports science of stuff and the recovery, it kind of did make it pretty unreal what they were able to do as far as they were traveling the West Coast way more than anybody else was. And for how many years did they travel the most miles from everybody? Those things can't be underestimated. I and mean, like, you know, you're driving a car for three hours and you get out and you go, oh my God, I'm, I'm totally cashed out here. So that's... Uh, the, the actual training protocols of it post game makes sense. You know, obviously minimum effective dose. We talk about that with training our younger, you know, athletes, high school level, where you're like, you don't have to burn the house down and you need to be making sure you're eating, you know, just balanced diet, you know, try and try and be healthy, whatever that's going to look like for us. But sleep, <laughs> like yeah. your sleep is more important than the actual training at this point. It is probably for the, you know, a professional athlete where it's just let the body figure it out. Um, that's, that's pretty Pretty interesting. I feel a bit more clear now about like hearing the stories about them squatting heavy or whatever it is, but recognizing it's not a three hour session post, you know, a three hour game. But yeah, um, I had a couple questions with uh, a doctor of physical therapy that I just um, podcasted with last week, actually. Um, he's very into foot health and, you know, he's working with me as a client right now. Um, but he's got a couple things and this is going to kind of transition to maybe some off season talk in, in tying this whole thing together. But, um, Dr. Zanis was curious about your sec, uh, perspective or protocol on, on training to combat the amount of time spent in trunk and hip flexion while on the ice, as well as, uh, how, if at all, uh, the players are working on reconditioning, um, with their feet being in the skates for so much throughout the year, even in the off season. I mean, hockey players, as we know, uh, we will play at any opportunity that's given. It's kind of, there's really not a whole lot of off season generally. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I, that's a, a fantastic question. Uh, foot and, and ankle mobility uh, is a, in my opinion, is, is a huge uh, factor and a very underestimated factor in 
uh, both performance and, uh, you know, injury mechanism, uh, injury reduction, whatever, however sure. you want to look at that. Um, because the reality is you're, you know, basically a hockey skate is a, it's a cast. So our players are literally in a cast, uh, minimizing ankle mobility and foot mobility and foot strength. Um, for, you know, again, you're right, at least half the year and realistically like much more than that. Um, so we, we, on a daily basis, we try to address, uh, ankle mobility, uh, with, you know, basic ankle mobility, dorsiflexion and, and rotary type, uh, mobility drills in our warm up. Uh, n- not anything extraordinary or, or time consuming, but a few, uh, sets and reps of some, some ankle mobility drills on a daily basis. Um, a lot of our players will, uh, train in, you know, minimalist type shoes. Uh, and we really encourage them to be, uh, you know, in that type of, of a shoe, um, as much as possible. Uh, if not barefoot, you know, um, not in this setting as much, but in the collegiate setting, I, we would spend time, uh, barefoot in our, in sure. our training process, uh, to combat some of that. Um, so that's a day to day, all year in season type of approach. And, and you're really shoveling, you know, stuff against the tide, uh, but you're doing as much as you can to try to, to maximize sure. what you can do there. Yeah. Um, in a, in sort of a reconditioning phase and, you know, early off season, um, certainly ankle and foot continues. Um, as far as trying to combat the, you know, the, the flexion that they live in all day, um, it's a great point and we'll spend more time, a little bit more time uh, in that stage of the training process in the off season, kind of posterior chain dominant. Um, a lot, a lot of our early stage, uh, you know, first three, four weeks of training is very, very mobility based. And we're trying to restore a lot of what we lose uh, because we're, again, living in those flex postures kind of all day, every day. Um, and trying to really open up like the anterior chain and the hip complex and things like that to get back to, you know, quote unquote baseline or, or, or neutral, whatever that might mean. And we assess those things in preseason. We try to keep track of that over the year to make sure that we're with, at least with stay, we're staying within a certain bandwidth uh, and, and address those uh, where and when necessary, if they start to creep uh, kind of too far down that equation. But again, with the amount of time that we have with them and, and, just the day to day, you're really combating to try to maintain or not lose too much ground. And then early off season, you're trying to regain some of that mobility and some of those structural um, dysfunctions that you, you encounter over the year. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like um, he's part of the power athlete group and, and, you know, I followed him for quite a while and we talked and I became a client. So I've been, I've, I've had, you know, playing hockey, you get all these random injuries and yep. you're just beat up, but uh, you know, right-handed when I write, but I'm left-handed when I shoot, swing a baseball bat, golf, whatever it might be. So started kind of like, okay, I've got this little, you know, lateral, left side, lateral pelvic tilt. And then he's looking at my feet and he's like, yeah, but you, you know, pronate it on your left foot, which can give you some right side, this right side shoulder. I'm like, oh my God, you know, 18 years of hockey, I lived in this and I still go back to it when I sit and you start to acknowledge this. And then on a exponential scale, you look at a pro in this case, a hockey player, how how much time do they take in the off season even just be off They make a long playoff run. That's a very short off season. Yeah. And in the reality of it, the, the intensity of a season, even if you don't make the playoffs is still, you are in that position more times than we could probably come up with a number. So to be able to combat that, I'm sure that's even just the mobility and the recovery tool of that in the off season is probably intense in its own right to find it, you know, find what the norm was, I guess, um, or yeah. just try and, 
take you away from what the new norm had become. So that's, that's pretty fascinating. Um, the foot health is pretty incredible. You, you call it a cast, but I always, jo- I, I mean, it's not the reason, but one of the reasons I have no calf, <laughs> like yeah. you're in a fixed boot, man. Like you, yep. there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, ankle going, uh, flexion, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion going on there. So it's, um, I mean, it's a lame excuse, but it's still it's reality where it's, 100% it's true. you know, yeah. um, Hockey's such an interesting mechanic too. Like when you look at what the stride is, uh, you don't see that in any kind of training, you know, off ice training in the gym and training. So what is like, is it just a matter of like building the ability, having the ability to have forced production uh, in, in def- different planes that produces that? Or is there anything you guys do in specific to, I guess once I would be counteract the, you know, you know, their external push there, external drive, um, but also to develop that so that the player is able to produce more power into the ice when they are striding. Yeah, yeah, it is. The, the skating stride is uh, essentially if somebody were to try to design the exact motions to create like hip dysfunction, they would be skating, <laughs> and skating at high velocity. Um, so, a, it's two parts really there's there's a lot that we try to do from a general training as well as sort of uh uh on the medical side of of the equation um to try to counteract and uh you know i guess you could say like prehab um the effects of skating and those postures um and then from a performance perspective we are actually doing some things uh to try to that are a little outside the box probably to try to develop force in more force and power in more um, specific planes and kind of vectors than your traditional, uh, you know, sagittal, uh, sagittal plane and vertical based strength and conditioning training, squatting and split squatting and trap bar deadlift lifting. And, you know, what all the kind of basic stuff that we would all do. And we do still do a lot of that stuff, but we started to transition doing more and more, uh, frontal plane, uh, sort of low velocity, high force work. Um, certainly a lot of kind of, uh, rotational based power work, whether it be with medicine balls or some other things like that. And so we're, we're spending more and more time, um, on those sort of transverse and frontal plane movements in ways that we can develop strength and force and power that are a little bit, um, maybe outside the box from a traditional strength and conditioning setting. But again, we're, we're having to be very um, pinpoint with when, where, and how we're applying stress. Um, so, you know, more about, again, more about kind of polishing the rock and working on the, the 1% stuff than the, the underlying foundation that for most of our athletes is pretty well developed anyway. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess that was kind of, I mean, it ties in just, we've talked a little bit about it, but the difference between in and out of season, but you know, at the time, it, you know, the devil's kind of in, in the same situation as the Red Wings, if the season hadn't gotten screwed up, but like season was going to be drawn short, you know, just right then at the end of, you know, April, beginning of April is going to end. When, what's the protocol for off season, you know, where they, okay, take your time away, go be with families, whatever it might be. When you call them back, sounds like, you know, maybe if there is that time off, they start with the mobility side of things. Let's try and get your body to a normal, whatever normal really means anymore, but normal functioning state of, you know, 
if there was an injury, how do we get this back? How do we get you into a more structured position that's healthy um, and get you your baseline? But in terms of the volume intensity, what what's really going on in the off season and what's the time frame of that? You know, let's get rid of the postseason because the playoffs is such a you know it's yeah. such a weird timing thing, anyways, and nobody yeah. comes out of that healthy. So, um, but yeah. just in a normal end of season, what's that look like? Yeah, um, so a couple pieces. First off, it's it's uh, pro sports and, and hockey is, is a little bit unique in that um, once the season's over, we don't deal day to day with very many of our athletes at all. Almost all of them uh, will go home to wherever home is. They'll go to Switzerland. Sure. They'll go to Canada. They'll go to wherever. And everybody has their own. You know, almost everybody has their own guy and their own training center and. So we certainly uh, build a program for them, um, and some of them will will follow that to a T. Most of them will go to their own place and do their own stuff, and we'll communicate with with their their coaches and and make sure we're aligned on the in kind of the big rocks, and but let them let them be the coach um, where necessary. Um, but from a from our program standpoint, for our guys that do stick around, you know, basically three weeks, two three weeks off uh, after the season is pretty standard. Um, they need it mentally. They need it physically. We need it mentally and physically. Like everybody needs to just get out of here and, and let the body be. Um, and then again, we get into that sort of reconditioning phase, which again, time frames. it depends how much time we have. If we haven't made the playoffs and that reconditioning phase might be, it might be four weeks long um, where we're really kind of trying to address some of these dysfunctional patterns. Like we talked about earlier, we're starting to develop just some very, very basic, you know, general prep work capacity, low end aerobic type stuff, nothing crazy circuit based work and, and some things like that. Starting to set the stage from a, uh, a sprint development standpoint, which is a big component of our training speed and sprint development. So we're starting to set the stage with just some basic mechanics and, and kind of not really not sprinting yet, but like getting back to learning how to sprint and all of those things. Um, and then the next phase is going to start to progress into um, you know, higher, higher force stuff. We'll usually go through a generally a triphasic ish kind of, uh, paradigm where we'll, we'll do some eccentric work and some isometric work and some concentric work. And then we'll start to basically ramp up velocity and power and sort of scale down uh, force output. And this will be a little bit different for different guys, depending on a lot of where we have them profiled, but as a general theme, that's what it'll look like. Um, another way to look at the whole thing is basically we go from general to specific. So by the time we get close to camp, what training should look like from a, a bioenergetic standpoint is basically should almost be mimicking what happens on the ice um, and certainly our movement patterns and our velocities and things like that. So it becomes much more speed power based uh, at the tail end where it's obviously more kind of force based and, and structurally based early on. Sure. So uh, bioenergetically, what do you, as you get uh, more specific and closer to the season, if one system sticks out more than the others, what are you looking at? Because hockey is such a unique sport where, you know, it's, it's not football where you might have this, you know, start, stop for, let's call it a couple minutes, and then you rest for maybe five, ten, you know, whatever the other team's doing. But hockey, it's, it's up, down, it's up, down for 20 minutes straight, and then you go, all right, let's take 15 minutes, and then we go at it again. So in terms of building that capacity, obviously, you know, you got the three systems that, you know, always working, but if you had to like, what, what's that look like in terms of becoming more specific for you, for you guys specifically at the pro level? 
Um, so basically we go through a progression that takes us from uh, more kind of uh, aerobic capacity and kind of our reconditioning phase into more aerobic power. So we're thinking more, uh, we're starting to get into interval stuff, but it's longer intervals. It might be, you know, a two minute work capacity type interval with a um, two minute recovery or minute recovery. Uh, that's going to transition into more alactic explosive stuff. So let's say up until about three to four weeks from camp, it's going to be very, very speed power dominant, alactic power, meaning, you know, 10 seconds of, of very high intensity work or less with high recovery rates. Um, cause we're really trying to build absolute speed, absolute power at that stage. We'll start to transition that to alactic capacity, which is basically the same work time, 10 seconds or less, but we'll start to shorten the recovery times. And then three to four weeks from camp, we really start to transition into uh, lactic anaerobic power and then capacity. Um, so that really what we're preparing the, the players to do at that point is not necessarily be game ready because it, uh, the, the demands of a game are kind of different from the demands of practicing camp. So we're really preparing them for camp, which is going to be very, very, very uh, anaerobically, you know, lactate dominant um, more so than a game would be, but we, we need to get them there so they can handle what's going to happen in the camp and then transition to be a little bit more um, kind of lactic power, a lactic capacity ish. Interesting. That's, that's uh, I assume there are some up and ups and downs in there, but uh, you, you wouldn't think, I think the low hanging fruit would be like prepare for the season, but the camp, how, how important is that for the majority of the team, majority of the members on the team, you know, like we're not everybody's PK Subban or, you know, Hughes, like where they you know, like, listen, we know we know who's gonna be there right but like you got to fill the rest of that roster up and like it's important that you're able to perform and, and withstand the intensity of that stuff because man even just a little bit that we get to see as, as fans like, holy shit man that's that's um that's full-on go right there when you're at camp and cool. have everything to do so that's that's pretty interesting um it kind of builds into this i, I want to know a little bit about the prospects um you know like how much contact do you have with them um, you know, are, are you part of, you know, is there any part of you that's with the scouting team as far as like, you know, you're, you talk about, you, know, maybe you're more in like the monitoring side of things where heart rates and, and all these things and measuring these things. So do they come to you at any point and ask you about like, well, what's, what do you think is projection of this based on the results we're seeing and, and just kind of the prospect experience and what's your experience with them and, and how do you monitor what, what is your kind of, you know, one, one, two or three things that you go here's how we would kind of project from a physical standpoint, maybe even mental to some component, what their path may look like to the pros or with the pros. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, you know, myself and the rest of the performance staff are, are really uh, highly integrated in um, really in, in the, the combine and the, the draft process, as far as relaying physical performance information to our, our, you know, GM and our scouting staff and, and helping to create context around that. What does this mean? Is this good or bad? Or, um, and, and what does that potentially project out towards as far as, you know, profiles, you know, guys that have played 500 games in the national hockey league, this is kind of what that looks like when they're 18 in the combine. And so um, you, know, you may be able to look at these players and, and project them to be a, a certain, you know, have the ability to have a certain lifespan in the league. 
Uh, so we're certainly integrated in that a lot, not this year because the draft and the combine is, is off. Um, <laughs> sure. So there's nothing really for us to provide from that standpoint. Uh, but, but usually that would be a, a big piece of our off season. Um, from a, a hands-on or, or a, a, a working with the prospects um, point of view, so at that, like after the draft, uh, all the teams have a, um, basically like a rookie camp, a development camp where they'll bring in their newly drafted players and, and a lot of their players that are not yet pros but have been drafted and, and other guys, free agents they want to look at, you know, college players and things like that. And we'll have a, a week-long camp, again, not this year, but usually um, in kind of uh, early, mid-July. And, we, you know, we would train, we would work with the athletes every day and, and uh, for a week or so and do some testing and assessment stuff like that. Um, and again, that's pretty standard across the league. Uh, once, once the prospects are out of there, um, I don't have a ton of interaction with them. We have a, a person on staff, uh, Mike Kadar, longtime strength coach in the National Hockey League, actually was with Detroit for a long time, who uh, he's our, our prospect strength and conditioning coach. So his role is really to travel around during the season and go see these kids wherever they are playing all over the world, check in with them, see what they need, see where we can help them from a, a training standpoint. Uh, so he has a lot of interaction there. And, and obviously we have a lot of communication uh, around that um, and, and helping to get those guys what they need. And again, working with their staff and their strength coaches, wherever they are to make sure that, that we're, we're assisting them and we're able to, to help their development along the way. Shit. Now you're a traveling strength coach. That's uh, <laughs> you know, the, the levels, the depths that the, the career can actually go to. It didn't, I don't know. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that they'd be traveling around the communication between teams and players. It makes sense, but uh, and traveling around, that'd be a pretty cool experience, I'm sure. Uh, uh, sounds like a young man's game, but uh, I mean, I guess you do whatever you love and that, that makes sense too, but that's pretty awesome. Um, another guy uh, that I worked with a little bit, um, he's actually out West, but he, he played over at Rutgers for a little bit and he's, he's strength. He was, he just recently left Princeton, worked with a volleyball team there, um, I believe among other couple other, but um, he was curious of like, you have a player like Hughes and PK, you know, your top, your elite prospects or your elite players, and they're having a slower year or down year. What, if anything, changes for you guys on your end? Is there anything in particular that you're working on with them? Is there, you know, what goes on with that? Yeah. Um, not a lot from a nuts and bolts standpoint, like um, the, the physical profile we develop on the athlete and with the athletes, uh, you know, input, um, is what it is. And, and that, uh, you know, that along with our organizational KPIs really help to define how we want to train and, and what we need to do with those, those individuals. Um, so training, training is, is training. And again, like the reality is the, the amount of time that we're training in season is really minimal. So the amount of time that we would change a bunch of stuff is 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 nil is not a lot so we're going to train the way we're going to train for their development and certainly everybody's going to have ups and downs throughout a year and, and that's where you know communication the art of coaching is important and, and there may be times where the guy's having a tough day and it's just you know what don't worry about the post-game lift we'll take care of it another day like oh, yeah. whatever and that that's away thing. from it that, for a minute yeah, but that's just more of the, the ebbs and flows of the day-to-day. -day. Sure. Well, do do they have um, like a mental performance coach on staff or the, the, the players do any mental performance training in specific? Uh, 
that, you know, in that case, maybe the aid, you know, therapist type thing, um, whatever it is, or is that just something that they kind of do on their own and, and to, to try and combat whatever might be going on? Yeah, it's both. A lot, a lot of these guys will have their own uh, resources and their own kind of, you know, people that they've worked with since they were, you know, 12 years old or whatever. Sure. Uh, but we also have people on staff that, you know, um, are, are experts in those kind of areas and are resources for the, for the individuals whenever they need it. That's fair. Um, I know we're trying to try to keep us on a timely manner. Um, I know you got a family, uh, you have one or two uh, little ones, two little ones, two yeah. little ones. So you're, you're busy in all aspects. Huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you balance uh, what you do with that family? And, and obviously it's a total buy-in from the family, um, in, in any career, but when you start working with the pros, there's just some things that, that aren't non-negotiable in some way, but what's the balance with the family there? Yeah. I'm well, first and foremost, yeah. Like, uh, you have to have the right spouse. You got to pick the right spouse early on. And, and my wife is just, she's unbelievable. She's, we've, she's followed me all over. We've lived all over the place and, and she's always been hundred percent, you know, uh, behind me and, and, and my career. And when my career is done, I'm going to owe her a lot because she, she sacrificed a ton. <laughs> So that's, that's the first thing, honestly. Um, it's funny, my role here, I don't travel a lot. Uh, I tend to stay back. If we have somebody injured, I'll stay back when the team's on a road trip. So I actually don't travel a lot, which is, uh, makes the, the home life much easier. Uh, the guys that do, it's the, the travel schedule is just, it's, oh, it's, sure. it's, it's insane. Um, so a lot of times the team, if the team's on a road trip and I have a, a player, we might be done you know, we'll come in in the morning. We might be done by, by one or two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm actually home. I can, you know, pick my son up from school and things like that. So in mm -hmm. some ways, uh, I, I travel less and I'm home more than I was in the college setting. Uh, mm -hmm. even though that the travel at Lowell was, uh, you know, was, was pretty confined to the new England area. So what, it was great. Um, but I don't, I don't make a lot of the road trips here. So in some ways it's actually a little bit easier. Well, that's awesome. Um, it kind of along those lines, you know, uh, should kids be playing multiple sports growing up is, you know, when do they decide to specialize? Do you have any, like an opinion on that? Cause I know that's, that's been a pretty, I think it's been a topic for a little while. Um, but it's becoming pretty hot right now where you're starting to hear a lot of like these, you know, specifically in football cause football runs the world. And, uh, but you hear about like, Oh, they were three star or three, you know, lettering in three different sports in high school and all these things. But there, I think there's a, you know, the pro and con to both of those things. Like obviously at some point you do have to specialize and uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think kids and I mean, you know, 14 and under um, I think should be playing multiple sports. I think uh, from a general physical athletic development standpoint, um, you, you learn things and you develop athleticism uh, by doing different things. Uh, and I, I've seen it a million times in my career where an athlete has only ever played hockey. And I would see this at the college level a lot. And so they were very, very, very skilled in a very specific bandwidth, you know, and they, uh, if you put some cones out there, man, they look like Wayne Gretzky going around these things. <laughs> but as soon as like chaos ensues and the game plan changes, uh, they, they can't, they can't read and react because yes, they can do this drill. And they, they, again, they look like Gretzky, doing the drill because they're, they know they're supposed to go from A to B and they've, they've rehearsed that a billion times. It's the only thing they've ever done. But 
they, their spatial awareness is not very good and they can't read and react because they haven't done things because they haven't seen scenarios from basketball or soccer or lacrosse that are just a little bit different and develop different skill sets. So I think, I think kids uh, should from a, a, if you're trying to, if you're in a vacuum, if you're trying to develop an elite athlete um, in a team sport, I think uh, exposure to a bunch of different scenarios early on is really important. But I also think that uh, we shouldn't be trying to develop uh, elite athletes as kids. Like sports should be for fun and, and life lessons. And yes, when they're good in a certain area, you know, nudge them. But I think, uh, I think if you're going about it, trying to develop a college, you know, division one scholarship athlete, <laughs> as a parent, you have the wrong hey, misguided morals. there. <laughs> yes. But I would say absolutely. Once you kind of, you know, if you are a really good hockey player and you're, 13, 14, 15, um, then, then you got to start making some decisions. And if you want to play college hockey and pro hockey, like then you have to start to go down that road and specialize a little more. Um, but it's sort of a, it's not an either, or it's sort of a, it's sort of a when, uh, conversation in my mind. Yeah. It's a, I coached, I haven't coached in a couple of years, but I coached hockey for, I don't know, maybe I'm gonna call it eight years, whatever it is. Um, and it was always just funny that the parents always just way worse than the kids are. Um, but like, well, you know, 12 year, 10 or 11, 12 years old. And like, well, my kid, this, and I want, I want their forms to be like Brett Halls. And you're like, you're talking about one of the greatest players ever. That was a grown ass man. Like, yes. Don't worry about your kid's forearms. Worry about him just going outside and playing with his friends and being a good human being. Yes. And like, that's how I always kind of coach hockey is like, yeah, we're here to win. Obviously, like I, I don't enjoy losing. Not many people do, but we're going to learn from these things too. But it's really just kind of about hockey was a life tool to me. It was an opportunity to learn and fail and succeed and do all these things and just socialize and become what I think is a decent human being at this point. But I tried to give that on, pass it on to the younger athletes. Like you're not going pro. I I would be far more willing to bet on that than I would be willing to bet on you going pro. And it's not to say that you're not capable. It's just to say like, this is, it's a very, the funnel gets real narrow there. So like I take it from the strength conditioning side of things like, I'm not here to make you a better football player. I'm here to make you a better athlete. And whatever you decide to do on the field, on the ice, on the court is really where sports specific comes in. And and you can take that and and be dynamic there. But here I'm just trying to take the same influence, teach you lessons, teach you basics, enjoy movement, enjoy the gym, all these things. And um, so I can appreciate that. It's, it sounds like, you know, I think most people (laughs) like pay attention to what long-term athletic development looks like would say like, just go be the generalist. And, and once you have that base, if there's something that sticks out more that you enjoy more, yeah, follow that maybe up a little bit, you know, 14, 15, 16, where the decisions start to be made for you kind of at that point in, in terms of like, is this going to be a business and career choice or is this just going to be, you know, the fun of like, I'm still going to play beer league. That's it. Right. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, so I'll start wrapping this up a little bit. Um, I know we talked a little bit about this and just in, in some text, but um nothing really going on because of COVID uh, with the players. Like how that hasn't changed a lot. Obviously are you guys treating them as in they're still in season for training or is that looking at like it's off season just because even if they do come back for playoffs, you know, again, like Detroit, they're nowhere near it. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic because um, uh, we don't, we don't know. Uh, I know as much as you know, to be honest with you, we we don't know what's going to happen if we're going to play or not or, or what that would look like. So 
in some ways that I mean, basically we're, we're writing off season remote programs for our players. Um, in some ways we're, we're trying to sort of keep them as ready as possible, but what can you really, you can't really do anything sure. about that. So we're starting to get a little bit more into kind of off season E programming. Um, but again, the, the reality is a lot of guys are, uh, you know, a few of the older guys and established guys are, have a home gym at their nice house. A lot of our guys <laughs> live in an apartment, you know, until recently, a bunch of them were in apartments in Jersey city and couldn't even go outside. Right. So what do we do for them? So we're, you know, try to get them access to very, very minimal equipment, a kettlebell, a weight vest, a TRX, and then do what you can do with those constraints. So it's really challenging right now in that, Yes, we're trying to keep them as prepared as possible, but also just the reality of like, we're six weeks into this. We're probably many more weeks to the end of it. And what can you do? Uh, So it's, it's a, it's an interesting time right now. Fair enough. Um, Just going to rapid fire these things. Uh, Biggest challenge with hockey players that maybe we don't see with other sports. And then the obvious, which I think every hockey player knows the answer to this, but is hockey the most difficult sport? (laughs) Um, the biggest challenge I think again, or, you know, maybe one of the most unique is just the, the, what the skating stride and we, we haven't talked about goaltenders, but what, what their hip mechanics and then resulting dysfunctions look like because of just the really unique movement patterns that these guys go through, I think are, are the biggest challenges really to the biggest part of the job, which is, excuse me, trying to keep them as healthy as possible. Um, and then is, is hockey the most challenging sport? I mean, obviously like you're skating around on knives, you have a, a four foot long stick that you're trying to hold onto a piece of rubber on a frozen lake and people are trying to kill you. Yeah. It's the most challenging. Hey, fair enough, man. I'm, I'm all on board with that. I figured that would be the answer. <laughs> no, no argument for me. Um, so just last couple here. Um, anything that you're working on curious about What's next for your research? Like what, is, what does success in this position mean to you and where do you see it growing to? Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of sort of internal projects that I and our staff and our group are working on from kind of a, a research as well as a, a practical application standpoint and really trying to uh, better define and better understand some, some of the nuances um, with our group. Um, potentially starting to, to work on a, another book. Um, awesome. with another colleague of mine, uh, Kevin Neal, who's the head strength coach at the Boston Bruins. Uh, so we've Very been cool. in kind of discussion about that, but that's a longer term kind of project. Um, and then what does success uh, mean? I mean, professionally, um, pretty obvious that, you know, the end goal is to win games and, and eventually to win the Stanley Cup. So that's always the, that's always the uh, kind of the big picture. I think on a daily basis, success in my position really means um, – finding ways to have an impact. I think that's maybe one of the most challenging things in the national hockey league, just again, with all of the constraints and all of the schedule and everything, um, the ability to, to have a, a positive impact on our players and, and on, on our organization. So finding those areas is, is really kind of what day-to-day success means for me. Awesome. Awesome. So final two wrap up here, man, uh, this has been super awesome for me. Um, I know we're actually pretty close to each other in, in, in geography here. So uh, when the season does, hopefully sooner and later comes back up, we'll uh, we have to meet up or something like that. But yeah, uh, for sure. my wife and I, we try and come up to the devil's games or Philly just because they're close proximity and you know, easy enough. Like devil's games are pretty cheap right now. So um, pretty exciting there, but uh, one, where can people find you? 
Uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on social media, uh, both Twitter and Instagram is uh, at dmcconnell29. Um, Instagram is a mix of uh, training stuff and pictures of my kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Twitter is, is, is pretty uh, kind of strength and conditioning based. So pick your well, I was laughing yesterday. <laughs> we exchanged a message and you t- just tweeted out like trying on some jeans from a few weeks ago. Like, <laughs> yeah. fit, so like, fuck you, COVID. <laughs> yep, yeah. Yep, a big win. <laughs> Mine's gone the other way where nothing fits. I'm like, I got to get back to moving here. This is bad. But, um, last one for me, like, uh, I asked this for everybody. What does a life well done mean to you? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, if I'm on my, my deathbed, hopefully a long time from now, uh, being surrounded by, um, a big loving family that, uh, are proud of, of who I am as a person. And hopefully, you know, that I've been able to have a positive impact on not only them, but, but, you know, everybody that I, that I, come across and encounter on a daily basis the athletes and the people I work with and just hopefully people would look back on, on me and say, you know, that was a, he's a good dude and he, he worked hard and, and he left a, a positive impact. Awesome, man. Well, from, from my position, you're, we're well underway with that. So, uh, with that, Devin, uh, thank you so much for, for spending the time with me. Um, you were wealth of knowledge and, and thanks for letting me just kind of put an onslaught of questions together and, and really with them. So that that's, this has been super fun for me. Um, hopefully we get sports in general, but hockey specifically back is man, a year without the NHL playoffs is, uh, not a good year. Um, but, I hear you, man. um, best of luck to you and the devils and, and hopefully we'll be able to get in contact some point here, maybe in person at some point. And, um, but otherwise good luck, stay safe and enjoy your downtime right now. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Absolutely, man. Talk soon.